Well, it is good to be here again this morning and thankful for, for you and for being here again and um, to have the opportunity to study together. And uh, I want to invite your attention, first of all, this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I know it's not Hebrews, but 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> and I want to read a few verses beginning with verse 1. And I've got a question for you. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 3, 1. But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, here's my question. What does that sound like? Or I guess a better question would be, when does that sound like? Sounds like today, doesn't it? Sounds like every day. <laughs> All of history. It, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible portrait that is painted. And he predicted a time in their not-too-distant future, I'm convinced, that it would be like that, and we see a very similar circumstance in our world today. And as you look at the world, and you see the way the world is, and you take the rose-colored glasses off, sometimes we can feel pretty hopeless. We can feel like that, I just don't know this country's going to make it another six months, much less six years. And I would just imagine that thought has crossed your mind in the last few years as it has mine. But in spite of the perilous world that we live in and the many difficulties that we face, we've got hope. As Christians, we have hope. Hope that this world doesn't understand and hope that this world cannot provide. But God can. God who came to earth, God who came as man, God who provided not only the sacrifice to deal with our sins, but who through that and his resurrection provided a means of transformation to make of us a people of hope even in a world that doesn't have it and doesn't understand it. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And let's talk about the promise of God that is given through Jesus that provides us with great hope. And while we begin reading this passage, keep a few things in mind. Uh, keep in mind that he is referring to ancient Israel. They are the illustration that is being provided in this great chapter. And ancient Israel was liberated from Egyptian bondage. They had a 400-plus year history as slaves in the land of Egypt. And God brought them across the Red Sea and to the other side and brought the Red Sea down on top of the Egyptian soldiers that tried to follow and their bodies washed up on the seashore as an obvious indication of the defeat of Egypt 
and of the victory of Israel that God provided for the people of Israel. And then on that side of the Red Sea, God would take them to Mount Sinai and He would educate them. And they would build the tabernacle and they would do so many things that God said that they must as part of what their economy was going to be all about. And then He takes them toward the promised land. Now, trials and tribulations, but eventually what happened? Eventually, after one generation failed and didn't get to go in, the next generation did. And so there was hope that was given that that first generation, after being delivered from bondage, didn't get to make it into the promised land. But that next generation did actually receive that hope that was given. And that whole story is used as the background to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because like with so many things that we see in the Old Testament, those were uh, foreshadowing of what God would provide for us in a new. So our source of firm faith in a fallen world, as we're going to see especially in Hebrews chapter 4 today, is that the promise of Christ, the promise that He made, the promise that He is, the promise that He gives, that the promise of Christ gives us solid foundation for our faith and for our lives and for our hope because he anchors us with that hope. Let's read beginning with verse 1. Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. That is, falling away and not making it to heaven, just as some Israelites after liberation fell away and didn't get to make it to the promised land. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. That's the gospel. Just as they also, they had good news of going to the promised land preached to them, which was foreshadowing what we have in Christ. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. Yours may say mixed with faith. I like both of those renderings in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works, his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some, to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. So, you know, Israelites, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, here we see that the Israelites of that first generation failed to enter into the promised land. And that's an example that if we don't continue in faith in Christ, we'll fail to enter the promised land of heaven. But that second generation by faith did enter the promised land. And, and if we're faithful to the Lord we can enter that promised land of heaven too. So Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7. He fixes a certain day today, um, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, and by the way, if yours says Jesus there, just understand this, the Old Testament name that would be translated Jesus in 
in the New Testament is the name Joshua in the Old. And this is a reference not to the Son of God. This is a reference to Joshua as the illustration. And Joshua as the illustration led Israel into the promised land. And his point is that if we follow the new Joshua, the true Joshua, the ultimate Joshua, who is Jesus, then we can enter heaven. Uh, when, I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I took, I took French, and uh, my, our teacher ended up on a, a capital murder trial and was gone most of the year, and I learned very little French. But I learned this. <laughs> I learned this. She had us all pick French names. One of my friends, his name was Pierre. Real name's Reggie, but he's Pierre. And um, the name I chose was Francois. That just sounds debonair. Maybe that's why I chose it. Who knows why 18-year-old Shane chose the name that he did. But anyway, Francois. Okay, what, what is Francois in English? It's Frank. <laughs> it's Frank. So uh, two different languages, and the names are counterparts to each other. So in the Old Testament, Joshua is the name. In the New Testament, the counterpart of that is Jesus. But think about it. Joshua took ancient Israel into the promised land, and Jesus takes us to the ultimate promised land. So you can see the parallels and the foreshadowing that's going on there. And, and this is about Joshua of the Old Testament. Even if yours says Jesus, it's a reference to, to Joshua. Verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You know, even going to the promised land, while it was rest to a degree, it still just foreshadowed the ultimate rest, which is heaven. So in verse 10, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, just as God did from his. So think about it. Ancient Israel, when they went into the promised land, that was rest in a sense, but didn't they have to work all the time when they were there? Sure. So while they had rest from slavery, rest from the rigors of bondage, they still had to work. But that promised land was an illustration that spoke of the ultimate promised land of heaven, and our work will be done then. Anyway, so in verse 11, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, the heavenly rest, that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But what does that last paragraph tell us? We have a great high priest who is at the right hand of God who has gone through the human experience and who has conquered on our behalf so that we can approach the throne of grace and find the help that we need in a broken world, in a fallen world, that will help us live for him even through the discouragements that we find here. Okay, there's a lot more in here than we can talk about in one lesson. But let's summarize just a few thoughts as we take a look at this. Now, first of all, as we think about firm faith in a fallen world. We see Israel's struggle, and we see that their struggle 
uh, mirrors in some measure the struggle we have as we live in the world today. And so they were 400 years uh, approximately as slaves. They were weary. They were defeated. They were hopeless. And Pharaoh made it more difficult for them as things went along. Ah, give them less and less material, but expect them to produce the same amount. So you think about what it would be like to be a slave and to be oppressed in those, in those days. But we have our weariness too. We struggle with a lot of things in this life. We struggle uh, with temptation. We struggle with sin. We struggle with Satan. We struggle with discouragement. We struggle with death. We have so many struggles that we face in this world. So while we may not be in earthly bondage in the same way that ancient Israel was, we understand what it feels like at least in a figurative sense, to have shackles on our hands and feet. This world is hard, and this world is harsh. And if all we have is this world, and if all we look to is this world, how hopeless would our situation be as well? But if you'll remember, ancient Israel, what does it say? It says that their groanings came up before God. God hears the groanings of his modern people too. When we as God's people cry out to him, he hears us too. And what we need is we need true rest. We need true rest. What did Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Then he uses work language. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. And then he says, and you will find rest for your souls. Folks, rest in this sense is not ceasing to do anything. Rest in this sense is the comfort of knowing that we are working with the Lord. And he is strengthening us to do his will in this world with an anticipation of an ultimate rest yet to come when we leave this veil of tears. We need forgiveness. We need a sense of belonging. That's what our evening series is, is largely about, a sense of belonging, being a part of the family of God and having brothers and sisters in Christ who love us like they love the Lord, who will strengthen us and encourage us as we go through life. We need that sense of belonging. We need peace. We need hope. We need the kind of rest that, Jesus was talking about when he says, while we still live in this world, we can have that kind of peace. So how do we receive what ancient Israel missed when they missed the promised land? Well, he gives us several things in this passage we're going to take a look at. The first of those, he says in verse 1, let us fear. Now, when we think about the fear of the Lord, we think about fearing the Lord, Two things come to our minds. What are those two things? Respect and awe is one aspect of that. We fear the Lord in the sense that we respect Him and we stand in awe of Him. We reverence Him. Okay? And what's the other one? We don't like to talk about this other one. Obviously. 
the fear of, of failing and the fear of judgment that comes with not following God like we should. And so there's the terror of the Lord. And Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade people. We try to urge people with the gospel to do the will of God because there's, there's, there's terror of the judgment. But once we have become Christians and we're following Jesus, rather than the terror of the Lord being our primary motivation, rather it will be our deep sense of reverence and respect be our devotion to the Lord that drives us on. I, you know, when I was growing up, and I probably am just a little bit scared of my daddy still, but uh, when I was growing up, I was scared of my dad. And I see some heads nod out there. I had good reason to be scared of my dad. My dad knew how to bring swift judgment if that's what I needed. And I tried to not need it very often. <laughs> and I think the last spanking I got, I was like five years old or something. I'm not sure. Uh, I learned it quicker than than some other kids did. But anyway, um, I was scared of him. But, but here's what happened. Here's what happened. Now, my dad didn't punish me when I needed it because he hated me or he was in a tirade and some angry fit against me. That wasn't, that wasn't his motivation. That wasn't his heart. He did that because he loved me too much to let things go that needed to be corrected. And so, and so there was that aspect of it. But as I grew, by the time I got to be a teenager, I didn't cross my dad, and it wasn't primarily because I was scared of him anymore. It's because I respected and loved him so much that I didn't want to disappoint him. So I had opportunities for everything teenagers have opportunities for, drinking, drugs, just, you know, fill out, fill out the list. I had opportunities for all that kind of stuff when I was a teenager, and I didn't partake in those things. And the reason I didn't is because I didn't want to hurt my parents. And as we grow in Christ, let us fear. As we grow in Christ, it will be less and less that we're scared of final judgment, and more and more, I don't want to disappoint my Father in heaven. I don't want Jesus who died for me to have agony because I'm not acting like I should love him too much for that to be the case so let us fear that that's the idea of the right attitude that we need to have and both reverential fear and terror of the judgment of God are both legitimate and, and found throughout the Bible the second one that that I'll mention is he says let us be diligent coming down to verse 11 again there therefore <clears throat> let us be diligent to enter that rest that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So, so learn from ancient Israel. Sometimes in the Bible, examples are given to show us what not to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, ancient Israel, liberated from Egyptian bondage, provided miraculously with food and, and drink in the wilderness. They were led in a way that, that was uh, foreshadowing the leadership that Jesus would show in an ultimate and full way when he finally came. But what did they do? They grumbled, they sinned, they rejected God, and they died in the wilderness. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, don't fall like they did. There's no temptation which has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And then the very next verse says, Therefore flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. Because God has provided a way for us, and we are to be diligent about that. We are to work hard when it comes to that. You know, when, when I was in college the first time, I got my bachelor's degree, so I was in college the first time, working on my bachelor's, and it, wouldn't, it would not be uncommon at all for me to have an assignment, and I wait until the 11th hour and 59 minutes to get started on my assignment, and so, or, or preparing for a test, either way, this is, this is how I did this, this is Shane's study method, don't imitate, don't imitate me when it comes to this. I'd start studying or I'd start writing at 8 p.m. the night before it's due or the night before the test. I'd start writing or studying and I would study four solid hours till midnight. And then at midnight I'd go to bed and Drew, I would set my alarm for 5 a.m. <laughs> and I would get up and I would continue to write or study whatever I was doing until I had to leave to go to school. And I can't tell you how many times I turned in my rough draft as my, as my paper. Now, sometimes under pressure I can work fairly well. <laughs> and so I, 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 did, I did get blessed with a few good grades along the line. But I was always under the gun. I was always behind. There was no diligence about it whatsoever. I was just trying to get by. Then I went back for my master's degree. Guess how many times I did that for my master's degree? Zero. I had about eight or ten years of maturity under me, and I, and I, was, I was on top of what I was supposed to do all the time. And that went a lot better, <laughs> by the way. Went a lot better. But, you know, in, in being a Christian... You've got to be more diligent than Shane was as a freshman, sophomore, and so forth in college. It takes more diligence than that. You can't wake up one morning and, and all of a sudden, I'm just a stronger Christian than I was yesterday. It takes work. It takes effort. And so we need to be diligent. We need to take action. And we need to be consistent about that in order for us to grow in Christ like we need to. The next one that I'll mention as we continue looking at the passage is that we need to hold fast. Come down to verse 14. 414. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That is, we need to adhere. We need to adhere to what he has to say. One translation put it this way, hold firmly to the faith we possess. We need to cleave on to that. And we need to grow in that so that we can be more like our Lord. Jesus, our high priest, is capable and he's loving and he's worthy. And why would we not want to adhere to him who has done all that for us? And has been faithful to show us what faithfulness really is. And then the last one I'll mention to you uh, in this part is we need to draw near. 
Coming down to verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, the, this idea of, of drawing near, this is worship language. This is worship language. When you read in the Old Testament, you'll see, for example, that they drew near to worship God. This is worship language. And as, as people who serve God, we are drawing near to Him to worship and serve Him because of our allegiance to Him. And so this is about allegiance to God. Our allegiance will grow us because He will strengthen us as we serve Him in this way. This is also priestly language. Turn over to chapter 10. Chapter 10. I, I love all these sections in the book of Hebrews, and it's hard to, hard to narrow it down as in preparation for, for lessons in the book. Coming down to verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest entered the holy place on behalf of the people. Well, that all foreshadowed that Jesus would enter the ultimate holy place. He'd enter heaven itself on behalf of humanity. And here he says, because of Jesus, we have confidence that we enter the holy place. He is our forerunner who went to heaven for us so that he opens the throne room of heaven so that we can access God in prayer and in service to him. Verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Now the veil in the Old Testament was that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And here we see that foreshadowed the flesh of Jesus. So that in his bodily death, he would take down the separating barrier between us and God and open heaven to us for our access through forgiveness, of course, but also for our worship and our service to be acceptable to God. That is, we don't have a human priesthood on earth that we, we approach the human priesthood and then the human priesthood approaches God for us. No, we have the ultimate high priest who went to heaven itself so that we have a direct line, so to speak, through him to approach God in heaven. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest, Jesus, of course, over the house of God, let us draw near. That's worship language. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the Old Testament, the high priest went into the most holy place with blood in a bowl. And he took the blood in a bowl and he sprinkled it inside the holy place. He sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant. It was blood, it was atoning blood on behalf of the sins of the people. Well, Jesus, the ultimate high priest, didn't go in there with a bowl of, of an animal's blood. He went in there with his own sacrificial blood. His own death paved the way. For all of that. And here we see that we can draw near. Whereas in that system the priest had to draw near to God for us. Well Jesus didn't just draw near to God for us. But he went to the right hand of God. So that we through his blood can draw near to God ourselves. With him as our advocate. With him as our high priest. 
and with Jesus also as our sacrifice of atonement. And our bodies washed with pure water. In that ancient system, there was a, a laver, a, a big wash basin outside, and the priest had to wash themselves in the laver before they entered into the tabernacle. Well, before we can enter into the presence of God, we must be washed in the waters of baptism. Notice the symbolism there. We needed the real death of Jesus to give us access to heaven, and that old system with animal blood showed that it was insufficient and what Jesus did would be. And in similar fashion, those priests had to wash in the laver before they could enter into the presence of God to worship Him and to serve Him. And we must be washed in the waters of baptism before we can serve God through Jesus. Somebody says, well, I just don't think baptism is that important. I think baptism might have some importance, but I don't think baptism is essential. Okay, what if the priest didn't wash in the laver before going into the, into the tabernacle? Would God accept that? So is God going to accept us if, we are, if we're not washed in the waters of baptism? He's not going to accept us. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of your sins. We're baptized into Christ Jesus. We are baptized into his death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also might walk in newness of life. Jesus didn't live again through resurrection until he first died and was buried. And we don't rise to walk in newness of life unless we first have died to the love and practice of sin and been buried with Jesus. And we're buried with him in the waters of baptism. When we rise from the watery grave of baptism, that's when we receive the newness of life that Jesus provided through his death and resurrection. Baptism does also now save us. And it's not the cleansing of, of the body but it is the appeal to God for a pure conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We just quoted Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Romans chapter 6, and 1 Peter chapter 3. And we could keep going. Baptism is incredibly important, and we need to know why we're being baptized when we're baptized. Baptism is not just to obey God, though it is, it is not just to obey God. Baptism is to receive from God what we don't have until that point, and that is redemption from our past, redemption from our past. What did Jesus say? Unless a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We must be born again. And that new birth, in Jesus' description in John 3 anyway, is we must be born of water, that's baptism, 
and born of the Spirit. That is what the Holy Spirit has taught about baptism. It's incredibly important in order for us to receive what God has made possible. Let's finish up. So we draw near with a sincere heart, verse Hebrews 10.22. Full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There we see the combination of water and blood. We see the blood of Christ applied to us when we're, when we're baptized in water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We're holding on to Jesus by drawing near to God in that way. Well, I've got a few concluding thoughts that, that I want to give as we look at this multifaceted promise in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, one of the things I want us to consider is he talks about the preaching of the good news. Go back up to chapter 4 and verse 2, Hebrews 4 and verse 2. He says, For indeed we have had the good news preached to us. The good news what? The good news of liberation. The good news of our bondage being broken. The good news of us going from not being a people to us becoming the people of God. And so the preaching of the good news. And then we see that this promise involves God's eternal and infallible plan. In verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, one of the powerful things about the promises of God is that when God makes a promise, God fulfills His promise. God fulfills His promise. In fact, there are times when there are statements in Scripture which uh, have been described as, as, a, as prophetic past. That is, these are things that are prophesied about future events, and it's so certain that it will happen that it's stated in, in times past as if it's already happened though God hasn't fulfilled it yet. So here when it says uh, the works were finished from the foundation of the world, the plan of God to provide redemption for us through Christ, that plan was in the mind of God so much to be a reality that it was going to happen no matter what happened here on earth. And God happened to work through history in the way that God does to fulfill these things even though humans tried to stand in his way and the devil tried to stand in his way and some of the people of God tried to stand in his way. And God still fulfilled his promise to bring that salvation to the world. Which brings me to this point. When God makes a promise, hold on to it. When Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, if you have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, be assured, be assured, he fulfills that promise. When Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life, have confidence that in living with him and for him, he will give you eternal life. And when he says that if we repent and pray, as was told by 
the Apostle Peter to Simon the sorcerer, if we repent and pray that God will forgive us of any new transgression we commit as God's people, be assured he will do exactly that. God keeps his promises. And what a blessing that we can look to the one who through his eternal infallible plan has made these things possible. And then we see this Sabbath rest, which we talked about earlier. And again, the promised land, the promised land was a rest from, from the bondage of Egypt, but they're still going to have to work. They're still going to have to work. But compared to the bondage of Egypt, that work was a lot different scenario, wasn't it? You know, growing up, we've all busted rocks, right? Growing up, you had some, some hard thing that your, your parents made you do, and so you did it because it was because they told you to do it. And I grew I grew up on a farm and, and we did a lot of things that I did not frankly enjoy at all. So much so that I decided when I grew up, I was not only gonna get off the farm, I was gonna move to the big city. And I was gonna be a city boy, not a country boy. And I was gonna have a much easier life. I wasn't going to sweat putting hay up in the barn anymore. I'm going to put all that behind me. My life is going to be so much different. And the biggest city I've ever lived in is Sulphur Springs, Texas, and it's not that big. <laughs> it's not that big. And, and by the way, I have no plans to live in a, in a lot bigger city either. I'm not saying it'll never happen. I'm just saying I have no plans about that. But we can all look at times in our life where, where things were like this, and while we still have things we have to do, it's better than it was then. Well, the ultimate rest is never here. The ultimate rest through Jesus leads us to eternal life, which culminates in the presence of God. So their Sabbath rest was a small approximation of what God makes possible through his son Jesus. And thus we see the promise of God. And then we see God's living and active word. You know, you look at verse 12. We just kind of read through it a few moments ago. But you look at verse 12, and it talks about how that the word of God is alive. And by the way, the, the word of God imparts life. The word of God is active, and the word of God will activate our faith if we allow ourselves to be trained by it. We also see that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, a two-edged sword can cut this way, and it can also cut this way without turning the blade. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both directions. And the Word of God, with precision, can separate our transgressions from us and can cauterize things that need that kind of treatment and can open up channels so that we can serve God in the way that we should, all with the two-edged sword cutting this way and that. It is a word that gives life, and it is a word that brings judgment, and it's our decision as to whether we'll be on the life side of that or on the judgment side of that. But the promise of God is that His word can powerfully transform us through Jesus to be more of what God would have us be. And then finally, my friends, we have our great high priest. 
our great high priest who didn't take an animal that we brought to him and offered it to God. No, our great high priest who left heaven to come to earth to not only be our great high priest, but to be our sacrifice too. A sacrifice without which we would have no forgiveness, no hope. But our great high priest gives us assurance that he did all of those things so we can right now be in peace with God through the promise of God. And we can stand in hope today that one of these days he will come again in the clouds and the great high priest who redeemed us will then come as the great redeemer to take us away from it all and into God's eternal and completely comforting presence. Jesus powerfully breaks our bondage from sin through his death and resurrection. And he does that when we obey his gospel. Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Jesus lovingly leads us through this wilderness world where sin and Satan have so much sway. But through his word and through his providence and through the strength we find in close association with his people, he leads us through this world. And Jesus capably guides us safely home. I love coming to Mount Pleasant, Texas to work with you guys for a few days. I love it. It is an encouragement to me, and I hope that it is to you. It is a strength to me to be able to come and be with you guys for a few days. But I also know that while Alma and Leon are really kind, and I could have stayed all week, and I am staying a couple afternoons, and I've had other offers too, I also know that, that this, this isn't where I live. This isn't where I live. I've got a house over in Sulphur Springs. My grandkids are in Sulphur Springs, so you know where the grandkids are, the heart is. And then how that saying goes, okay, that's not exactly right. But, but we know, those of us who have grandkids, we know. But the travels that we take in life, in the will of God, can be a great source of strength to us. But we know one of these days we're leaving this world. We're leaving this world. And the promise he has made us is... He will take us home. He will take us home. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. But he will take us home. Rest in that promise. But rest by serving him who has made that promise. Well, thank you so much for your good attention. I've enjoyed these morning sessions. And... Um, got some more folks from Sulphur Springs here today. Jim and Sue made it over. I'm so glad they... They got to make it. They were planning to, and I was hoping they'd get to. So glad to see them here today and all the rest of you. So we'll have a word of prayer, and, and uh, that'll be all for this, this morning.